0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe
1: McCormick. And today it's a Vault episode. This is another one of our older anthology of horror episodes. I believe this was Volume 6, which originally published on October 29th, 2020.
0: Oh, wait, or is it Volume 5? Honestly, I lose track of the volumes. Oh, it could be be volume five. I don't know
1: how many volumes there are at this point. Yeah, maybe it's five. Okay.
0: I think we started out doing like one a year and then we did like two in one year. So, um, you know, the numbering system, it it becomes less important. As with any like horror franchise, the longer it goes, the the numbers just become redundant. Right.
1: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
1: And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with the second installment this year of our anthology horror series. Uh, This, I guess, is going to be the fifth anthology episode overall?
0: Yeah, I believe so. This should be episode, uh, or, yeah, volume five, however you want to look at it. Um, It's always classier if it's volume. Yeah, if it's volume. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, so basically this is just a, a continuing experiment we've been doing where we look to the wonderful world of horror and sci-fi uh tv anthologies and uh and cinematic anthologies and pick out little episodes little uh uh, audio visual short stories that generally have some horror or sci-fi or some sort of uh, uh you know some sort of weird uh and perhaps grotesque twist in them and we use that as a focal point for a discussion of science and culture sometimes we're having to really um uh, read into the uh, episode a lot more than the uh, creators anticipated other times it's just it's really baked into an already intelligent script um it just kind of varies from piece to piece well i got one to
1: talk about first that is definitely baked in some way okay what do, what have you got for us joe okay today i wanted to start by talking about a classic episode of are you afraid of the dark Rob, did oh. you watch Are You Afraid of the Dark as a kid? I,
0: I did. I, I I can't remember what channel it came on. Maybe it was a Nickelodeon thing? Yeah, it or, was. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I remember catching episodes of it. And rem- I remember it as being occasionally, like, really creepy. Like, it was effective. It was not, uh, you know, it wasn't... I mean, it was a kid's show, but it could really creep you out a little bit. It was, it was well done, as I recall.
1: Yeah, a lot of the episodes really are. And I would say even the bad episodes, going back and watching them as an adult, it is an extremely fun, nostalgic rewatch. Uh, a lot of the episodes that I found very scary when I was young, you know, it, it is a kid's show, so they don't quite have the punch they did when I, when I was eight or whatever. But a few of them are, are still kind of surprising. And one of my favorite things about the show is, is that it is just egregiously, adorably Canadian. One of the fun things about going back and watching it now... Is that you frequently encounter child versions of Ryan Gosling or Nev Campbell or somebody else you recognize Mm -hmm. from later work. And when it comes to the older actors, they weren't usually people who you'd recognize from big movies or anything, but a lot of them have this powerful energy of like a local character beloved in some town. Like you often get the sense Mm -hmm. that when you meet Dr. Vink or somebody like that, it's like you're, you're looking at the RC Bates of Toronto. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I think the episode I mostly remember from this show is uh, if I if I'm remembering it correctly, is the the tale of the dead man's float, which has to do with like a, a haunted s- high school swimming pool. Yes that I remember that, that, that I I'm I don't know if I'm remembering correctly or I may be misremembering that it's somehow in the in the basement of the school, but maybe not.
1: Yeah, there's a swimming pool in the it's like a cursed swimming pool that was on a cemetery or something.
0: Yeah. And I think this is the one where, like, when I when uh, it follows came out, there's a sequence in it. It follows yes, and involves a yes. swimming pool, and it it made me think back to this episode.
1: You are a thousand percent correct. I I think I made that connection at a subconscious level, but the moment you said that, it you're you're totally right. But the episode I want to talk about today is one I don't remember actually which season it's from. I should have looked that up, but anyway, it's called "The Tale of the Super Specs." and it's notable for being i think one of the episodes with some legitimately scary imagery which is achieved via very low tech means it's just a uh, it has some very creepy images of people draped in black cloth uh but it also ha- i think is the episode that introduces the fan favorite recurring character uh Mr Sardo who is a Vain, uh, sort of uh, scheming, magic and novelty shop owner who gets angry when people call him Mister Sardo, and he always uh, says his catchphrase, "That's Sardo, no Mister," accent on the doe. Yeah, <laughs>
0: that seems that seems very particular. Like he's not mad that they're calling him Sardo, uh, right? It's, it's more that the, the yeah he's being he's being a little fussy about this point. I think. I mean, you invite these
1: problems when you decide to be a single name guy. Yeah. But okay, so the premise of this episode is that there's a young man named Weeds who is kind of a, a a prankster and he's browsing in Sardo's Magic and Novelty Shop. It's the kind of place that's got masks and fake vomit, but it's also got apparently legitimate spell books and referenced tomes on the occult and real magical uh artifacts and objects. I'm not sure why they're all crammed together in this one shop. But so he he's sort of uh, looking around for things and he comes across a bag of magic dust. Which while uh, simultaneously reading a spell out of an ancient tome, he accidentally spills this magic dust over some plastic glasses that are being sold as super specs, which are supposed to grant x-ray vision. Uh, I, think it, I think the original understanding is these are just novelty glasses, but they, they get imbued with magic power when he says the spell. Uh, also there in the magic shop is uh, Weeds' girlfriend, Mary Beth, and she decides to try out the super specs, but when she does, she sees shadowy figures who are draped in, in black cloth from head to toe, and they're following her everywhere, and there are multiple Occasions, you know, like they go to school and she puts on the glasses again and she sees the figures and then she goes home and she puts on the glasses again and sees them another time. She also sees, um, elements of alternative reality. So like, she'll look at her fireplace and without the glasses, there's no fire in it, but with the glasses, there's a, there's a fire burning. So it's very, they live in a way. Now, eventually what happens is that weeds and Mary Beth get convinced that there are invisible people from another dimension, Who are stalking them, and they consult with Sardo to try to figure out how to get rid of these shadow people. Uh, And I won't spoil the ending to this one because I gotta admit, the ending is pretty good. But the basic premise is what I wanted to talk about. It's the premise that there is a realm of life that actually occupies the same general space as us, but that we go about our lives completely unaware of. And it's, it's a take on the idea, popular in some, like, alien conspiracy theory architecture, that aliens are somehow already here. They're here on Earth, but they're invisible to us for some reason, or they're hiding in plain sight.
0: Yeah, I think I think I recorded a, an older episode of the show with um, uh, Ben Bolin and Matt Frederick uh, guesting where we talked about shadow people and uh, a particular study that linked some of this phenomena to uh, disruptions of the body schema so so basically like like a situation where um, you know neurologically your idea of where your body is and what your body's doing would be skewed in a way that it would be perceived as some sort of a shadow being that was close by oh, I see not to say that 's a definitive answer for for all of this, but it was it was one idea that was put forth by some researchers
1: well i mean i I think we can. Be pretty safe in assuming that there are not actually like uh, people sized organisms that are walking around (laughs) unnoticed on Earth and and are aliens of some kind. I mean, I guess you can't rule it out, but I'm not aware of any kind of evidence that something like that is possible. But I wanted to explore a maybe more plausible, still unproven, but more plausible and very interesting sort of parallel idea and the place I want to start here is uh, – I, I was reading the, the British astronaut and chemist, Helen Sharman, who was actually the, the first British astronaut ever. Uh, she was talking to The Observer, I think, earlier this year. And saying that, uh, you know, it was her opinion that just given the size of the universe, the number of planets out there, the number of opportunities for biochemistry to arise, that she's pretty convinced that there must be aliens out there somewhere in the universe. Uh, and then she adds, quote, will they be like you and me made up of carbon and nitrogen? Maybe not. It's possible they're here right now and we simply can't see them. Now, I want to be clear that I'm not aware of any evidence whatsoever this is actually the case, and I don't think Sharman was suggesting that we have evidence of this being true. But it does raise the very intriguing question of how would we know if aliens in some sense or some kind of alternate organism were already here, already somehow within range of our senses – well, first, is there any conceivable way that something like that could be true? And second, if it were true, would there be any way to sort of put on the super specs, any way to figure it out? So to further investigate this idea, I, I was reading a great article from Astrobiology magazine from 2006. So this is a little bit older, and some of the uh, sci- the underlying science might have changed somewhat since then. But I think the basic question still uh, stands as posed, and this is by the UC Boulder philosophy professor Carol Cleland, and the article is called A Shadow Biosphere. Now, by a shadow biosphere, she means a rarely considered form of alternative life, not aliens from another planet, but aliens from Earth, an unrecognized alternative biology that may exist parallel to us invisibly here on this planet. And she asked the question, if something like that existed, what would these alternative biologies entail in order to have escaped our notice? So they could possibly include alternative forms of information coding, so forms other than DNA or RNA, or they could include different amino acids to build their proteins, or, quote, any other means by which the chemistry of early Earth could have combined to form life we are not familiar with. And so there, there are a few things we can probably rule out from, you know, in any reasonable question. The first of which is the, the super spec, you know, the literal super spec scenario where there are like human sized organisms that are going mm-hmm. unnoticed. She says, probably if these shadow biological organisms were on the scale of familiar plants or animals, we would have already noticed and detected them, right?
0: Yes, we would, somebody would have figured it out by now. So what we're
1: probably talking about, if there were such a thing, would be microscopic organisms. But microscopic organisms can have big impacts. They do a lot. And so uh, the the impact of a microscopic shadow biosphere could be enormous. And it would be very interesting to discover that it had gone unnoticed this long.
0: You know, I can't help but be reminded of a a great uh great in quotation marks here uh saturday night live parody commercial uh from i guess back in the the 90s uh for the fecal vision glasses did you ever see this one <laughs> no i didn't uh where you know, everybody puts on the fecal vision glasses and then like fecal matter uh glows bright green oh, nice. and of course they just they just show a ridiculous amount of it like in the entire room is basically covered in it there's a baby covered in it that sort of thing <laughs> um, but in a way, you know, seeing the unseen um, uh, world of life forms around us. I think that's an excellent point of comparison. Keep keep that keep that image
1: in mind as we move on. <laughs> uh, so one of the first things, of course, you'd have to consider if you're addressing this question of could there could there in fact be a shadow biosphere is um, what counts as life? You want to make sure you're defining your terms properly because you're, if your definition of life is overly inclusive – it could lose all meaning, right? You don't want to end up with the definition of life that includes, like, volcanoes and waterfalls as life. Mm Mm-hmm. But obviously, there are lots of different definitions of life that are in competition with each other. I was reading an article by an astrobiologist named Samantha Rolfe, and she points out there are probably more than a 100 legit definitions of what constitutes a life form. Uh, Most of them encounter some potential objections here or there. Just as one example, she points out that that if you zero in on the definition of life that's centered on the ability to reproduce – you arrive at a strange conclusion that like a 3D printer that can print and assemble copies of itself is alive, but a mule, which is sterile, is not alive. And th- that doesn't quite seem right.
0: Yeah, I think we, we've discussed on the show before some arguments about viruses, but also about fire, uh, the degrees to which fire can be classified up to a point as, a, as an organism. Uh, yeah, or- It's not an organism, or- but but you can make an impassioned argument if you're feeling uh, argumentative about it.
1: Totally. Or like forms of crystals, things like that. I mean, it, mm-hmm. y- you run into a lot of difficulties, actually, if you're trying to come up with the definition of life that rules in everything we want to think of as life and rules out everything we don't. Right. So in this 2006 article, uh, Carol Cleland zeroes in on the following distinctions. Uh, what What she thinks is important is first – Quote, the capacity of a system to maintain itself as a self-organized unit against both internal and external perturbations. So, basically, that means a life form has, has some type of structural resiliency. It sort of protects its own integrity and has some form of resistance against just dissolution by external and internal forces. And then the second thing she says is the ability to reproduce and transmit to its descendants adaptive heritable modifications. Now, all the life that we know of on Earth uh, that meets those two criteria is defined by a common chemistry. We know what the primary types of molecules involved are, and those molecules are proteins and nucleic acids. Nucleic acids, of course, would include DNA and RNA, and they store hereditary information and they produce proteins. Proteins then make up the structure and the machinery of cells and of the life form as a whole. And the interface between these two functions, the hereditary function and the structural or mechanical function of the the protein, this is handled by a very important structure known as the ribosome, which is made of both proteins and RNA, and which translate the hereditary information stored in nucleic acids into usable proteins. This is how all the life we know of on Earth works. And yet, uh, Cleland says, we just don't know how different life could be. Maybe that's the only chem- chemistry in the universe capable of producing the functions we usually attribute to life, and maybe not. She writes, quote, Moreover, we can't rule out the possibility that the most important characteristics of life have yet to be discovered. The functions traditionally attributed to life may be little more than symptoms of more fundamental but as yet unknown properties. Uh, so, for example, at the time she was writing this, all life on Earth uh, built its proteins out of the same 20 amino acids, which sh- which all of these amino acids in life forms share the same chirality. Chirality is something we talked about, I think, actually, in a previous uh, horror anthology episode when we were talking about To Serve Man.
0: Uh, oh, c- yes. Yes, we did. Yeah. That was a re- really fun one uh, Yeah, about, like, how would you uh, – the, the dangers of constructing, say, uh, food for an alien uh, being.
1: Exactly. And and the idea that aliens would want to eat us, we might be poisonous to them if their molecular biology is somewhat different than ours. Yeah. But just as a brief refresher, chirality or the handedness of molecules refers to like which way they're oriented in terms of like a mirror image of each other. And Earth life uses left-handed molecules, but it maybe could use right-handed molecules. Uh, abiotic processes, like processes not associated with life, are known to create all kinds of amino acids that are not found in life forms. Cleveland references more than 100 known amino acids that are created by abiotic processes. So why does life as we know it not employ more of these amino acids uh, or different chirality of amino acids? Lab experiments show that you can build proteins out of alternative amino acids and molecules with right-handed chirality. Likewise, with the exception of RNA viruses, all life on Earth stores its genetic information in DNA, but it's possible DNA could use different combinations of bases and amino acids. So she's sort of asking the question in general, why all these particulars, why why all these particularities of, of Earth life that as far as we can tell are totally contingent? And Cleland thinks that the best explanation is, well, this is just how it happened in the conditions of the young Earth when life first arose, and these contingencies of molecular biology have been recopied down the ages since then, ever since these life forms have been reproducing. Quote, So it is unlikely that the ribosomes found in the cells of familiar life represent the only possibility for translating hereditary information stored on nucleic acids into proteins, let alone the original mechanism utilized by the first protocells. Had circumstances on the early Earth been different, familiar life would also have been different. But this raises a really interesting question. If these features of molecular biology as we know it are really just contingencies, in other words, if it's just, chemically, how things happened to shake out when the first life forms were coming together, how do we know that other life forms, other forms of molecular biology did not arise at different times and places on Earth, in the history of Earth, with their own contingent chemical quirks, making them hard for us to recognize with tools that are honed in the search for familiar forms of life. Hmm. I mean, in a way, what you can discover is sort of determined or bounded by what kind of tools you use and what you expect to be looking for
0: yeah i mean it reminds me a bit of uh recent discussions we've had about um how you would des- how you would describe a sense that you have to a being that is lacking that sense you know like yeah like it, it's it's hard to, to to uh to explain that and like that works in in, in reverse like looking for the thing that you can't experience
1: Now, from here, Cleland goes on to address some objections that are usually raised to the idea that there could be alternative forms of molecular biology on Earth. Uh, So, first of all, there is the claim that, quote, any variations in the earliest forms of life would have been combined by lateral gene transfer into a single form of life, right? So, we've talked about horizontal gene transfer on the show before. And the idea is that, you know, there, there just would have been like sort of a cross fertilization of genes that way, and they kind of would have been absorbed into the dominant biosphere Mm -hmm. Uh, but she argues against this by saying you know we can't assume compatibility and opportunity for lateral gene transfer between our ancestral microbes the microbes that became us and whatever these alternative critters are there could be chemical incompatibility there could be geographic isolation and so forth and then there is a second argument which is that well our single-celled ancestors would have wiped out these alternative biological organisms in the competition for resources. And she argues against this by saying, well, rare microbes that we know of tend to occupy unique ecological niches, so they're not necessarily in deadly competition for the same resources. They might just kind of have different needs, have established different niches, and they're just riding it out as, as sort of uh, rare, unique, and isolated communities of organisms. Or even within communities of of conventional organisms. And then finally, she talks about the argument that if these things are still here, we should have found evidence of them by now. And so against the we should have found it by now, she argues that given the tools we possessed at the time she was writing this, it was very possible to miss things like, okay, you can look at microbes under a microscope, But that can only take you so far because convergent evolution means that a lot of different microbes will kind of look superficially similar in structure, like archaea kind of look like bacteria. And then we have other tools like lab cultures, but lab cultures just might fail to grow them. Uh, and then another option we have for detecting microbial life that's difficult to culture is known as PCR amplification. That stands for polymerase chain reaction. It's a chemical process for multiplying genetic material so that it can be detected. And uh, PCR amplification that relies on ribosomal RNA would not be able to detect a microbe that didn't have ribosomes or that had a different form of ribosomal RNA. So basically, Cleland's case here is that our best tools for looking for chemical signs of life, at least at the time she was writing, are kind of tuned to the kinds of life that we know about, and they might completely pass over a potential shadow biosphere if it existed. Now, there's another possible objection, which is that, uh, wouldn't we have observed these microbes, these shadow microbes, by the effect they have on their environment? Uh, of course, we observe the effects of common known microbes on the environment all the time uh, she says quote life invariably modifies its environment extracting energy building structures producing waste products so you know all of the oxygen in the atmosphere is a product of of microscopic life or at least was originally uh, now i guess it's also the product of of macroscopic life but she says actually you know this is a really good way to look for these things to look for the effects they have on their environments and cleland argues that it's possible that up until now their effects have always blended in with the background noise of effects produced by other microbes so it's possible we just haven't looked closely enough in the right places or we've been hindered by the bounds of an existing paradigm of molecular biology Uh, She writes, quote, similar cases can be found in biology, such as the discovery of archaea, a new variety of familiar microbial life that revolutionized biological taxonomy. And uh, so uh, as background, archaea is now considered one of the three main domains or super kingdoms of life. You've got uh, eukaryotes, which includes all multicellular life, bacteria, and then archaea. And archaea used to be thought of as just a type of bacteria. It's now recognized, has been recognized since the 1970s, I think 1977, that archaea is, is a totally different domain, a different evolutionary history. Uh, But she goes on, in hindsight, it's clear there were signs that some prokaryotes are fundamentally different from others, despite their remarkable similarities in cell morphology. But because biologists were working under the prokaryote-eukaryote paradigm, which used cellular morphology as the guiding principle for understanding taxonomic relations, these signs went unrecognized. So we were just looking at the shapes of cells and thinking that would tell us everything we needed to know, and it didn't, actually. And then finally, uh, she ends the article by calling out a possible example of a place to look for alternative microbiology or uh, alternative molecular biology. Sorry. Uh, She singles out uh, an example known as desert varnish. And this is a thin coating of discoloration, usually kind of a red or dark discoloration that you see on exposed rock faces in deserts and other dry areas Uh, you've probably seen it before if you looked at some desert rocks that had a kind of dark red or black shiny surface and i've read that since this 2006 essay new discoveries have made desert varnish appear to be very unlikely uh, as a result of shadow biological processes but that doesn't mean the question has gone away i mean the questions about a possible shadow biosphere remain uh, more recently, I was reading an article about this uh, in science by Emily Conover. Uh, this was in 2015. And Conover points out developments since the uh, the original idea of a shadow biosphere. Uh, have, have continually been introduced. They, they make it more and more interesting. For example, discoveries that make clear how our traditional definitions of earth life are just not quite inclusive enough. They don't necessarily capture all the possibilities. For example, quote, "Recently discovered giant amoeba infecting viruses blur the line between life and non-life. Although they rely on their hosts for essential biological functions, meaning you know, they're not self-sustaining, the bacteria sized viruses have complex genomes. So the question would be then, how are scientists currently looking for signs of possible alternative biochemistry if there's a shadow biosphere on Earth? Uh, And she quotes the planetary scientist Carolyn Porco of the Space Science Institute in Boulder, Colorado, who says, you know, a really good way to look for these things is to go back to the last point that Cleland raised in the article. Look for disequilibriums in nature. Look for environments that are sort of out of balance or out of whack. Quote, Life takes in and uses energy, altering its environment in the process. Without life, for example, our planet would not have an oxygen-rich atmosphere, as chemical reactions tend to deplete oxygen. Uh, She also mentions uh, some other interesting possibilities, such as the idea that uh, this one is raised by David Lynn of Emory University, who draws attention to the idea of misfolded proteins representing a possible type of alternative life. Uh, says, quote, they show some similarities to life, Namely, that they can generate diversity in the different ways that they fold, can undergo chemical evolution, in which those folded proteins are selected not genetically, but chemically. And this could be a kind of precursor to some sort of of chemical network that would be very different than what we're familiar with. Uh, And I was also reading an article. This is the one I mentioned earlier by uh, Samantha Rolfe, which is about the hypothetical option of. Of a shadow biosphere based on silicon molecules instead of carbon molecules. And silicon, of course, is not nearly as good at uh, as, as carbon at doing the kinds of things molecules need to do inside a cell, but there have been experiments that created silicon bonds in bacteria that make it seem at least possible that some kind of silicon-based life form could exist. So in the end, I, I want to be very clear that we don't know that there is a shadow biosphere of some kind on Earth. We don't have any strong evidence that there is, but we do know at least that if it exists, it probably consists of microorganisms if it exists at all. But some, some science fiction I want to see exploring that is like uh, the idea of big sort of network effects created on the Earth by microorganisms within a shadow microbial ecosystem.
0: You know, if memory serves me correctly, uh, it's been several years since I, I read these, but uh, Peter Watt's book uh, Starfish – Involves uh, a plot element uh, that it, that it entails this: uh, an ancient apocalyptic microbe called Behemoth that gets unleashed on the Earth. It's Ooh. been uh, like hiding out in the bottom of the ocean. That sounds good. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 quite good. I don't know why I haven't read Starfish yet. Maybe that'll be yeah, next on my list. Good. But uh, you know, Peter Watts aside, what does what does Sardo have to say about this? <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, Sardo unfortunately is a charlatan. And this raises a question that is true of, I think many sort of, uh, I don't know. Kind of fast and loose horror or, or, or supernatural properties, which is that it often appears that you are able to buy real magical artifacts and serious tomes on the occult within just like crank magic shops that have fake vomit in them. Why, (laughs) why is that so common?
0: I mean, I, part of it's the hunter-gatherer instinct, right? <laughs> yeah, the okay. idea that we could go into a junk store and find something of value, you know? Like, uh-huh. it's, it's why I will go into uh, um, a thrift store, and I'll see if I can find a copy of Jerry Maguire on VHS. Oh. Like it's, it seems unlikely that such treasures are still available, but I'm still going to look, and occasionally I find one. Well,
1: that's so, true magic, though. Yes. <laughs> Sardo is also contributing to the pyramid in the desert.
0: Yeah. Uh, so, I, I, But then I also think another big part of it is the kind of like small town magic shop and, and God bless them where, where you can still find them. Uh, you know, anytime I see one, I have to I have to check it out. But uh, but shops like that too. We like the idea that they could have genuine uh, uh, occult uh, things in them because that means we have access to them. That means there is a, a poss- there a possible connection between ourselves and the supernatural and the fantastic.
1: Mm-hmm. I guess for some reason, at a gut level, I find it much more plausible to find the occult tome or the real magical artifact in a thrift shop or something than I do in the in the novelty magic shop. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's just
0: me. Well, you know, strange, sudden deaths are always happening to uh, legitimate wizards, and then who's going to sell their stuff? And where are they going to sell their stuff? It's going to get pawned off to the local magic shop.
1: I guess that's it. You you combine them, the thrift shop, and the, they've got a secondhand element, and that can yeah. You know, then anything
0: can happen. Yeah. Now it's probably eBay. It's most of your monkey paws are being bought on eBay these days, and then you get it, and you're like, all the fingers are still fo- are folded on this thing. I don't even get all the wishes.
1: Here's something I want to hear from listeners. What is the creepiest, like, most cursed antique or op- artifact object you've ever bought or, or, or somehow acquired?
0: <laughs> yeah, I'd love to hear that, too. All right. On that note, we're going to take a break. But when we come back, more horror anthology. All right. For our next uh, anthology selection this year, uh, I'd like to return to The Crypt, uh, Tales from The Crypt. Uh, the the uh, the the awesome HBO series uh, that uh, that was a was was an adaptation of these older pre code uh, horror comic books and as we've said before just does generally does a great job of creating these at times kind of trashy uh, and nasty tales of often bad things happening to happening to bad people bad people getting their comeuppance in some sort of grisly twisted manner.
1: This one that you picked for for today's episode i watched last night and it has a spectacular Intro full of puns by the Crypt
0: Keeper. Can we yes. share some of these puns, or do you already have them written down? I do not have them written down, but if you if you have them, just floating around your head. Oh, I recall.
1: Let's see, what were they? So I can't do Crypt Keeper voice, but it, it has something to do with uh, getting a house, uh, getting a little house on the scary, a tomb with the yes, view. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm.
0: What are you afraid you can't get a mortgage? <laughs> yes. So the, the, the intro to, to the show was amazing. The Crypt Keeper segments were amazing. And then the the episodes themselves are often um, I mean, it, it's rare that there's not something notable about them, either a major star or someone who would become a major star or just a great character actor is present. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, big league directors uh, sl- you know, slummed it up for Tales from the Crypt or, or likely just had like a really good time with the the, the, the series. And um, yeah, I find myself returning to them time and time again. Um, It I I remember watching it often half scrambled uh, on HBO when I was like a middle schooler. And it was, you know, this perfect cable TV netherworld of titillation and gore to immerse yourself in. Um, And it's it's. It's interesting that, uh, you know, the, back then, the, the, that was the way to watch it, like sort of like pirated, half-scrambled format. Mm-hmm. Uh, and nowadays, as of October 2020, it looks like the rights to the series are contested or something. I don't know. I don't, I don't know the precise legal uh, prison that it finds itself in. But you cannot stream it anywhere. Um, you can't buy it digitally uh, so as of right now, the only place you can watch these episodes are like on YouTube and Daily Motion, unless you have like pre-existing digital purchases, which I have on some of the episodes, but not all of them.
1: Well, I think what you're getting at is that it actually feels appropriate with the low quality because it's like watching it through like a scrambled cable signal. Yeah,
0: yeah. It's actually better quality than uh, than most of the time when I was watching it uh, when I was younger. Um <laughs> But, uh yeah, I keep hoping that it'll come back because uh you know th- th- there are still other t- tales to tell, and they could retell others and create new ones in the same vibe I mean clearly, people have been doing that over and over again uh, across the decades and also uh john uh, uh, cassir the, the the voice of the of the Cryptkeeper, keeper is very much alive. not only is he alive uh, but he is on cameo I found out i was I was talking <laughs> with my wife about. A friend of ours getting cameo videos for their, their spouse for their birthday. And I was like, yeah, cameos just doesn't really interest me unless it was the Crypt Keeper. Maybe if it was the Crypt Keeper, I'd be interested. And sure enough, uh, he's on there, $70 a pop. Um, he holds a Crypt Keeper uh, like mask over his face when he does it. So you don't get the full puppet performance, but still you get the voice.
1: After you brought this to my attention, I was investigating, and I found out you can get cameo messages from Zordon from Power
0: Rangers. <laughs> but not Z- How about uh, Sardo? Sardo on there? Oh, I didn't look for Sardo. I should have. All right. We'll have to look for Sardo later. Um, anyway, like I said, a lot of these episodes of Tales from the Crypt are ghastly and grisly, and there's a lot of blood in them. Um, but this one uh, that we're going to discuss here is is a bit different. Uh, this one... Uh, is titled Maniac at Large. And uh, it's uh, it's really a rather tasteful affair as far as Tales from the Crypt goes. <laughs> and it's directed by John Frankenheimer, uh, famous for such films as The Manchurian Candidate. Mm-hmm. And it stars Blythe Danner, uh, a veteran of stage and screen that you've, prob- you've almost certainly seen her in something before because she's been in everything. It also
1: has uh, Salome Jens, who I found out was in a movie called terror from the year 5000 which was a i think a double feature drive-in double feature from the late 50s with the brain eaters which is uh one of my favorite movie posters of all time
0: that is a great movie poster yeah i guess i've never seen it but i've seen the movie poster time and time again i think i've had it as a desktop wallpaper before um it has a couple of other notable character actors in it uh well one character actor and one kind of rock star celebrity uh clarence williams iii is in it he plays a security guard he's another actor you look him up you've definitely seen something with Claren- clarence williams iii in it and he gets a he gets a fun role that it, it is at times kind of creepy but then adam ant himself shows up as a mega creepy library patron adam ant has strong
1: ted ramey vibes in this
0: yeah so, uh, again, this, this episode's extremely solid, quite reserved for a Crip episode, but with some satisfying twists and turns. The basic plot here is that Danner's character, Margaret, has just started a job at a library in the big city. She's trying to navigate the environment, figure out you know, who she can trust, who she doesn't, what are the clientele like, what's this creepy adamant dude all about, um, uh, and getting, just getting used to the new job, all while a serial killer remains at large in the city.
1: I would say this is very much part of the early 90s urban hell Mm subgenre, which is the – I don't know if it's a genre really. It's just sort of a set of assumptions shared by it seems like every movie made in like the late 80s, early 90s, which is just that like – cities in general and new york in particular are hell on earth and and uh, that you just don't want to be in the city and that it's associated with just like littering and crime and traffic and and misery
0: but, uh, but at any rate, yeah, it's very much the idea that this is the, the city is a bad place mm-hmm. and the library is, is not a great place within the city. But she's doing the best she can. Now, I, w- I will say there's some, there's some twists and turns that occur that turn some of these elements on their head. Yeah. But, this um, one's
1: got a good twist, I thought.
0: This is a good twist. We're not going to ruin it. Uh, go check it out. Again, as of this recording, you can probably just find it on YouTube, uh, which is sad. You should be able to watch this in a more pristine quality. But at any rate, several elements worth pulling out. Out for our discussion here Adam Ant's character pipkin is obsessed with serial killers so he keeps coming up to margaret and just chatting her up about serial killers saying just all sorts of creepy things just an overload of creepy serial killer obsession things I just remembered something. It was at the
1: back of my mind, and then I pulled it up. There was a movie from 1988 that I watched uh, in a terrible VHS copy many years ago called Spellcaster that also has Adam Ant in it. And I realized Adam Ant had a fairly extensive film career. In this movie,
0: I think he plays an evil wizard. (laughs) Well, he's good in this, I have to say. His name is Diablo. All right. So you have Adam Ant's character, Pipkin. Uh, Just being obsessed with serial killers and being very creepy and suspect. Also, Margaret herself has become increasingly obsessed with the idea that she will be the killer's next victim. Creepy things keep happening. People keep acting creepy. um, And she keeps and, and she's clearly obsessing over the fact that she could and perhaps will be next.
1: And it's, it, this is sort of spurred on by Adamant's character because he's yeah. like,
0: uh, who's the next victim
1: going to be? I think it'll be a woman this time.
0: Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, he's so slimy. It's wonderful. Uh, but then also she keeps she bringing some of this up to the head librarian, Mrs. Pritchard. And Mrs. Pritchard, uh, she tries to like stamp this down a bit. She dis- largely dismisses the serial killer as being this inflated news story and a matter of mass hysteria. So I thought all of this would be a perfect reason to explore the question: Why are we so obsessed with serial killers and true crime? Now you've you've probably noticed uh, this already, but murder podcasts are big business. Mm-hmm. I feel like barely a week goes by without a new announcement about some new ghoulish podcast. Uh, either it's either at least true crime, if not a serial killer uh, podcast as well. Robert,
1: I hate to break it to you, but the, the call is coming from inside the house uh, because <laughs> we, we, we got a, a quite a number of these within our own family here.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's a big – it's an ever-growing family, so it en- encompasses all sorts of types of podcasts. Even sports podcasts are around. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I don't mean to, to be judgy on that, that fact or just judgy about – true crime enthusiasm to begin with, because I can, I can easily think of some great reads I've enjoyed that are about serial killers. I've enjoyed some true crime content in the past. And, and heck, we're talking about a great episode of Tales from the Crypt that concerns serial killers. Um, and as far as just more general true crime goes, I, like a lot of people, grew up watching Unsolved Mysteries and scaring uh, you know, the, the pants off of myself, not only about ghosts and aliens, but also about just random acts of crime and madness.
1: I would say one of the most powerful sounds in the entire world in terms of unlocking just a host of creepy associations in my brain is the Unsolved Mysteries theme music. The moment that plays, the trap door in my brain opens and everything comes out.
0: Now, obviously, when we're talking about true crime, there's a broad spectrum of good and bad. Uh, taste within within, uh, the genre. And it ranges greatly. I mean, there's the whole domain of police procedural true crime, which, of course, entails, say, the the work of David Simon and others. There's also the grislier stuff that can border on just sort of creepy serial killer obsession. And then there is there's the psychologically minded stuff, you know, the, the mind of a killer type approach, which I guess can be a little on the the creepy side at times, but also can just be very well put together and formulated and, and, and in many cases based on actual psychology and the, the actual, um, uh, you know, so the actual studies into the minds of serial killers. There's also highly journalistic stuff, as well as the kind of sort of citizen journalist and citizen investigator uh, fare that has also proven highly popular. But it really does seem at times like our, our appetite is just insatiable, and uh, and it leads us you know, at times to wonder like what does it all mean? Where does this? Where is this coming from? What is the uh, the itch that it is scratching? Uh, you know, and and is it uh, some sort of modern phenomenon, or is it just a, an aspect of, of of the human experience?
1: I'm interested in what creates the difference between the tolerance for. Uh, fictional violence versus the tolerance for true crime. Like just personally, I like a lot of like, you know, violent, scary, fictional horror stuff, but I don't have much of an appetite for true crime. And there are people who are totally the opposite, you know, like a monster Mm -hmm. movie to them would seem like gross and overwhelming and unpleasant, but they will just devour true crime. And obviously there's some kind of difference at play there, but I'm not sure exactly what it is.
0: What would uh, Rocky Erickson have said about it? Didn't he have a, 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 an insightful quote about uh, different types of horror? Uh,
1: I think you might be thinking of where he says that today's movies prey on your inner fears instead of your outer fears. And that's why I wrote the line, don't slip in mud or you'll slip in blood. Tonight is the night of the vampire. <laughs> Doesn't necessarily clarify a lot, but there, there's no. some kind of obscure wisdom
0: Yeah, yeah, I I agree. It's worth keeping in mind as as we move forward, even though, again, he's he's referring to just a a division within horror fiction as opposed to uh, fiction versus reality. So I think one thing to get out of the way is that I I think we can we can safely dismiss the idea that this is a a new phenomenon because we've pretty much always had crime stories of one sort or the other. And our fascination with it is is to a large extent fueled by our fear of real crime. Uh, But if you look back to a lot of of myths, uh, you know, you, you find something interesting. You know, these are stories of people who commit crimes often. Now, they're committing crimes against the gods. Uh, or some sort of, um, you know, uh, celestial or infernal order in the world. Uh, But then likewise, what are modern laws and social norms but modern gods of a sort? I think a lot of anthropologists of religion would probably
1: argue that what the gods were was some kind of embodiment of laws or norms. Yeah,
0: yeah. And uh, I've also seen it uh, it argued that if you want something more in line with a pure crime story— uh, you can look to the um, the, the Arabic uh, one thousand and one night's tales in that tradition uh, to provide some great examples of, of what is essentially early crime fiction, uh, the exploits of criminals, the uh, the comeuppance of criminals, etc. So on one hand, perhaps we're just exaggerating uh, to try and make anything out of modern true crime interest as if it's something new. But th- there is a lot of, of interesting insight out there into like what it means, wh- where does this interest in crime fiction uh, and, 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 and true crime come from? And uh, one particular um, uh, expert that I was I heard an NPR story uh, 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 featuring, this is from 2009, and uh, they were talking with clinical and corporate psychologist Michael Mantell. Um, and uh, they pointed out that there are several key elements involved in our enjoyment of true crime. Uh, first of all, there's the not-me element combined with uh, psychological voyeurism. So it's, it, you're not watching a crime or you know, a murder or what have you that is affecting you. You're watching uh, something that affects somebody else, and we are engaging in a certain amount of psychological voyeurism in that case. On top of that, there's a catharsis in identifying with the victim, uh, and, this is, uh, and we have like rehearsed anxiety in these cases over terrible occurrences. So it's almost like um, uh, via our, our, our empathy, we're able to simulate these horrible things without them actually happening to us. Mm-hmm. Now, the other the flip side of that, of course, is that you can also engage in compassion and empathy with the perpetrator, not necessarily to the level of saying like, oh, man, I wish I was I wish I was like Charlie. But but more <laughs> like, you know, what if I was like, Char-? you know, I think I think that's all, that's key to a lot of our psychological fascination with serial murders, for, for instance, is that we know that okay, this individual, this, they, their brain is not exactly like our brain, but but a lot of things are the same. And therefore, it's tempting to analyze that those comparisons and think, you know, what if I, you know, was just a few degrees to the left or a few degrees to the right? Could I find myself in this kind of mindset? Could I find myself uh, having committed acts like this? Not only as far as nature goes, but also as far as nurture goes as well. You know, if my life conditions had been a little different, Would I be, uh, you know, the figure uh, on the television right now? Would I be the subject of this podcast episode?
1: Yeah, I'd say a variation on that is that people might sometimes just want to feel like they're getting a better idea of what to look out for in other people. Yes. Uh, because you know it, it's it's a cliche at this point that somebody commits a horrible act, does a mass murder, or turns out to be a serial killer or something, and you know the the news camera interviews their their neighbor and it's like oh he seemed like a really nice guy I wouldn't have known it and you know sometimes that is the case. People want to be able to think like, I, I could figure out. I could figure out who was the, the sicko. I could figure out who was the bad guy. And maybe there's a sort of feeling, at least at a subconscious level, that by consuming a lot of true crime, you could somehow you, you can discern a pattern. You can figure out, oh okay, here's how I could sniff out the Jeffrey Dahmer.
0: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I want to come back to, to some of that in a minute. But but it's also worth keeping in mind uh, all of this in considering the essential, essentially, there are two types of crime stories, right? There's the case closed crime story. Uh, and then there's also uh, the, the open case. So on one hand, we love a good, uh, you know, structurally complete tale. We love a story in which the bad guy is apprehended the right bad guy is apprehended mm-hmm. and uh and, and the case is closed and you see a lot of that in um in true crime you know people especially if it's uh, you know very oh you know a lot of the police procedural stuff for example is about that like how did they catch the baddies what can, i remember the, the series the new detectives mm-hmm. what kind of really cool technology are they using to catch the baddies but on the other hand the open cases, the unsolved mysteries, like that's tantalizing as well, because, uh, you know, on some level, even if it's, if it's just a slim chance, you could you could watch that and think I might be the next victim or I might be the one to solve this. You know, I could I could be the one I could notice this thing I could learn. I know what to look for. And if this uh, fellow comes limping up to me with a fake cast, I can call him on it and I'll be the hero.
1: I think that's right. But actually, another thing just occurred to me, and this is based on your earlier point about psychological voyeurism, which is the idea of, in a way, watching like a serial killer story where they ultimately get caught – is kind of like just another form of the watching somebody fail spectacularly thing uh, mm-hmm. where you, you like to see somebody who you know who, who's in control of things like lose control and, and spiral out and all that. Uh, the, the, uh, just a morbid version of it might be, okay, here's the serial killer. They've got a system. They've got a method for not getting caught. But then they get sloppy and it all spirals out of control and they fail and they, they go to jail.
0: Yeah, this is kind of I would say the lesson is sort of committing crime is hard (laughs) and it it can be a weird, positive experience to to encounter that because it can make you feel comfortable. in the fact that like, oh, well, you know, if if you commit a crime, you're probably going to get caught. It can give you at times even an inflated sense of um, of of the competency of um, of police investigations. (laughs) Um, On the other hand, it can be kind of like a. Uh, Like, I I guess I'm not going to commit crime because it looks really hard. You know, if it were easy, I guess I'd give it a shot, but I'd probably get caught. So I better not. I wasn't going to do it anyway, but now I know that I'm definitely not going to do it.
1: Actually, now that I think about it, this might be even more the case in, I don't know, less grisly true crime, not just in serial killers, but really in stuff where like there's a con artist or somebody executing massive financial crime or something like that, mm-hmm. uh, where th- there's an element of the hot mess allure that you, yeah. see, you know, like it's really exciting to to see somebody on social media who's just like a hot mess and they're f- flaming out and really making things bad for themselves. I think there's a, there's a strong element of that in a lot of these things, like you reading about Bernie Madoff or something.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and again, it can, it's also yeah, it's it's about bad people getting their comeuppance, right? All right, time for a quick break. We'll be right back with more. And we're back. Now, one thing that uh, when when Mantel was asked in this NPR piece uh, about, uh, about 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 d- different uh, gender demographics in the consumption of uh, of true crime, now Mantel said that that he didn't see. Any kind of um, you know, notable demographic differences. Uh, and he, sus- he suspected that there, was still like- there were still likely differences in the sort of crime stories that interested different demographics. However, I think most of you listening out there, you've probably heard quite the opposite. And I know that I've heard this multiple times in meetings about podcast uh, listener demographics that uh, the true crime audience skews female. And I have to be honest, I I don't think I was really aware of this until it started coming up in podcast meetings. I just, you know, maybe I can look back and find some sort of uh, some memories and be like, oh, well, that kind of lines up with this alleged uh, statistic. But uh, I I don't think I had really thought about it before then.
1: I don't know if there's any evidence to that gender divide or not. I assume you'll tell me in a minute. But uh, but one thing I would suspect is even if there is, it probably depends on what you define as crime.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I'm not sure there is a true definitive answer on that. Like I say, the podcast number of crunchers seem pretty sure about it. They're certainly willing to, you know, to invest uh, money behind the idea. But uh, one paper I did look at was one titled Captured by True Crime. Why are women drawn to tales of rape, murder and serial killers by Amanda M. Vickery and R. Chris Fraley published in 2010 by Social, Psychological and Personality Science. So exploring this reported demographic divide here, the authors looked at Amazon book reviews and found that men seemed more likely to review war books and women were more likely to review crime books. Uh, They had research subjects then read crime fiction uh, synopses and report, and they found that women were more drawn to the psychological content of true crime and, and they were more likely to read true crime books if the victim was female.
1: Okay, so that's not a perfect measure of actual reading habits in the yeah.
0: wild, but that is but
1: it's a, a, at least an interesting datum to begin with.
0: Right. Yeah. If you're going to start somewhere, again, yeah, it's not the most robust um, study I don't think they're putting it up uh, is that. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's a good place to start. So, um, Vickery's take is ultimately is that it all comes down to survival kind of touching on what we were discussing earlier, true crime tends to revolve in some way around the challenges of surviving a crime. It's either just an an, an obvious survival story, or it's a tale from which one might draw survival ideas. What did the doomed character do that, um, that doomed them? You know, what can I do differently to avoid said doom? And so even on a subconscious level, it's about learning how to avoid and survive crimes. And this makes sense, too, uh, as the authors point out, because women tend to fear crime more than men and are statistically more likely to be the victim of crime. Uh, according to the U.S. Department of Justice in 2008, females aged 12 or older were five times more likely than males aged 12 or older to be victims of intimate partner violence. And additionally, in 2007, intimate partners committed 14 percent of all homicides in the U.S., And those are some pretty sobering statistics. Uh, By the way, October uh, is also National Domestic Violence Awareness Month in the U.S. Uh, Just a reminder, the National Domestic Violence Hotline is 1-800-799-SAFE or 1-800-799-7233. But let's get back to this idea of of survival. Um, uh, So so as engaging with these crime stories is kind of like a rehearsal for survival, a learning experience for the survival of crime, it, It seems implied that the reverse would be the same, for these, uh, these these male readers who are then reading all of this war, that it's also about survival, uh, you know, processing the riddle of survival in the brain. And I feel like that makes sense. Without getting into the, the idea of the gender divide, I know that, that I've personally dealt with the stresses of 2020 by in part thinking a lot about, say, war games, clone wars, the galactic civil war, the wars of ants, that sort of thing. And, and But then likewise, I can think back to times in my life where I found similar solace In crime fiction where, um, you know, I I distinctly remember a time where there was a fair amount of stress in my life and I was watching uh, some um, these were these were fictional accounts, but they were basically like slasher films. And I remember even thinking at the time, like, this is a weird way to feel chilled out by watching a film about a slasher like this should be this should on some level be uh, making me more anxious or making me feel, you you know, more nervous. But it's not. It's somehow making me feel better.
1: Yeah. My hunch is that there are two different ways that can work. One is that if it's an effective slasher movie, then there is actually sort of an endorphin, you know, emotional catharsis thing of like being afraid, but then not actually being at a threat. Uh, you know, once the, once the fear passes, you kind of get a endorphin release and you're like, Ooh, okay. And that can be kind of calming. Um, it can give you a sense of control to have the ironic distance and like watch something that is actually scary, but then know that it's not real And then on the other end, if you're watching like a bad slasher movie, I think there's a different, there's a similar and simultaneously different thing at work, which is there's still the ironic difference, but the ironic difference element is played up to the point where like watching something that is supposed to be scary but is in fact funny is very reassuring. You know, it makes you feel like there's yeah. maybe not that much to worry about.
0: Well, uh, just thinking of bad slasher films, like how many of us have watched slasher films and really harped on on the the idea of what to do when you get this, the killer down. Right. Mm. Like, obviously, the thing to do within the context of the films is if you knock the killer out, you slowly approach them and take their mask off. Mm. You don't say uh, grab their weapon and stab them a million times in the torso to make sure they're dead. Uh-huh. Um, but we love, like you know, at times, even just yelling at the screen because they are doing the wrong thing. You are not practicing good survival, but I, at the same time, am contemplating survival and... To some degree, I feel like you feel like you're learning about survival.
1: Yeah, this is a good point. A lot of slasher movies, I think, could could be effective and could be enjoyable to people because there are at least implied rules. Like Mm -hmm. there's a a system of rules that you can suss out. And the fact that they're not announced explicitly makes it seem a little bit more interesting and fun that you have figured them out. You kind of know what a lot of the – you know the mistakes the characters are going to make ahead of time. And you can think that, ah – you know, uh, Dewey here is very stupid for having done that. I would have not done that. I know better. (laughs)
0: Uh, By the way, that Vickery and Fraley uh, paper, uh, they also uh, point out that um, neither female nor male subjects in their study were drawn to stories with explicitly emotional or sexual content, but it was the psychological content that interested female test subjects. Um, So I I suppose the idea there is it's coming down to um, – Again, survival, but, uh, but on a psychological level. Like, how do you tell which character is the creepy killer? Kind of coming back to our Tales from the Crypt episode. Like, is it, is it Adam Ant? Is it his character? Mm-hmm. He sure is acting creepy. Uh, am, am I able to psychologically analyze him in a way where I can guess uh, that he's the killer? Or is it Clarence Williams third, Or is it Salome Jens? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of those episodes where all possibilities are on the table. Now, a couple, a couple other just short references to to uh, uh, some write ups that I found um, insightful in all of this. As Sarah Watts points out in her Forbes coverage um, um, of the aforementioned study, all of this lines up with psycho- psychologist Dr. John Mayer's view that purposely, exp- purposely exposing oneself to violence yeah, in these um, uh, th- these forms can serve as an inoculation against fear. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we also have to consider individual differences in all of this. So some of us are drawn uh, into, uh, in, into uh, say, true crime or horror movies because of thrill-seeking personalities, but it could be more about interest in, in the taboo or interest in dark subject matter. Uh, so it's it's ultimately very difficult to create like a, a one-size-fits-all rule for why people like true crime or horror or whatever the uh, the particular piece of media may be.
1: You know, it's funny. I feel like I still haven't even in this discussion figured out the answer to that question I was asking about true crime versus fictional horror, like both Mm. both deal with violence and fear and threats, uh, but people have extremely different reactions to them. Uh, I noticed that usually like horror movies are fun. They make me feel good. And true crime just kind of usually makes me feel bad, but there are people for whom it's entirely the reverse and I'm still not sure why.
0: Yeah. Um, And and then, I don't know, sometimes it's about how it's presented, right? Like, I instantly think to how both uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Fargo both have the introductions at the beginning to try and cast them as legitimate occurrences. Mm -hmm. You know, this really happened, even though both are are pure fiction. Um, uh, But but yet, I guess a lot of it comes down to the fact that I often find that the true crime, like, that's definitely true and not uh, you know fictionalized to a large degree has a tendency to feel yeah just more just feel sadder feel mm-hmm. like more of a a tragedy as opposed to a you know violent romp but one area where we see um uh, this This is interesting in, t- in talking about where the fiction meets the reality. Um, I was reading uh, from a book titled "Blood Obsession: Vampire, Serial Murder, and the Popular Imagination" by Yorgo uh Assistant Professor of Modern Languages and Director of the Language Resource Center in uh, at Ohio University in Athens um, in this uh, book, one of the many points that they 're making is that they, they draw this connection between serial murderers, uh, certainly in the modern sense, and the vampire myths of old uh, seeing the 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 modern serial murder as the vampire myth uh in real life so you could you could argue that the, the the modern serial murderer um either in their their stark reality or their sort of presumed reality you know their slightly fictionalized uh you know view of there being one around every corner that we're still dealing with. A, a solitary humanoid hunter of other human beings that we can obsess over. And the vampire is kind of the, the purely supernatural reflection of that same idea. And I think part of this comes back to what you said earlier about rules. We like that there are rules and, and both vampire fiction and it's certainly serial killer fiction. And to a certain extent, true crime is often about the rules that they abide by. Anyway, I think I think the distinction is not, not only um, you know, fascinating, but also it's worth keeping in mind, especially during Halloween. So you can't you can't really go all in on Halloween and vampires and all and say that you don't get true crime fascination, because I think ultimately there's a lot of crossover between the two. Uh, it's just, yeah, ultimately, do you want your uh, you want the bad guy turning into a bat or do you want the bad guy, um, you know, limping around with a fake cast or what have you?
1: do you want it set to Swan Lake or do you want it set to the unsolved mysteries theme?
0: <laughs> uh, I, I would take Swan Lake uh, uh, anytime. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you. That, uh, that unsolved mystery theme song kind of stirs uh, uh, just an innate feeling of fear in me, much like the tales from the dark side theme song. Ooh. Oh
1: but the, man, that unsolved mystery song. It's that, it's that one like expansive bending note, you know, the brown yeah. before the, before the yeah. beat kicks in. It's so powerful. <laughs> and
0: then here comes robert stack walking out of the, uh, the the mist the light behind him ghosts do they exist or is this another hoax let's watch a recreation starring matthew mcconaughey
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know unsolved mysteries gets a lot funnier after you've recently rewatched beavis and butthead do america because robert stack oh, yeah, plays he was the in atf that, yeah.
0: agent on that yes yes that was that was good i remember that now yeah all right. Well, we're going to go ahead and close it up for now. But I think we're coming back for a third uh, episode this year. What will be? Volume 6? 7? 6? I think yeah. so. Maybe. Volume 666. Uh, be on the lookout. Basically, the situation is going to be, uh, we're will. we going to be recording episodes during the week of Halloween for the week after Halloween. And we don't really want to record non-Halloween episodes during the week of Halloween. So you're going to get a little extra Halloween this year. Um, so uh, hopefully you're okay with that. But then then we'll move on to some other topics. If we feel like it. <laughs> yes. All right. If you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you know where to find us. And that's everywhere. Anywhere you get a podcast – You can find us. And if they let you leave uh, feedback and stars and so forth. Uh, if they let you subscribe, uh, we ask that, that you do that because that, that helps the show out, we're told. Uh, likewise, if you want to find us really quickly, you can go to stuff That'll shoot you over to the iHeart listing for this show. And hey, there's a little store um, uh, listing there. You can click on that. That'll take us to the Tee Public store for our show. You can get something with our logo on it. You can get a face mask with our logo on it or various monster shirts that we've put out uh, over the years.